Hey, what you're about to listen to is the podcast version of what was a live radio segment on KPFA. Consequently, when you hear us give out a call-in number, you don't want to call it. If you're listening to this as a podcast, it is already too late, and nobody on the other end of that phone number is going to have any useful answers for you. You can, however, send in a question for our next episode by shooting an email to upfront at kpfa.org. You can also tune in for the next edition live and ask your question over the phone then. We normally air Monday mornings on KPFA just after 7.30 news headlines. All right, let's go to this week's Corona Calls. We're going to turn, as we do most weeks at this time, to new developments in the world of COVID-19. And this week, that new development is a new subvariant that has accounted for a growing share of virus samples that are sequenced and reported to the Centers for Disease Control, e.g. 0.5.1 or ERIS, as it is being named by people who like nicknames rather than alphanumeric sequences. Uh, joining us, as he does most weeks, to go over the new developments, Dr. John Swartzberg, Clinical Professor Emeritus of Infectious Diseases at UC Berkeley School of Public Health. Good morning, Dr. Swartzberg. Good morning. Tell us about ERIS. Well, it's another in the long line of spinoffs of Omicron. So it, it comes still under the rubric or the 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 nomenclature of Omicron, so it's a type of Omicron, but it's, it's again, different than what we've previously seen. It is very preliminary now, but the data suggests that it's a little more transmissible. It can sort of glom on and hold on to the receptor sites a little bit better. To date, it doesn't show any evidence that it's more virulent. That is, there's no evidence that it makes us more ill. But week after week, we see it growing, not dramatically, but week after week it's growing, and now it's taking a lead in terms of the types of subvariants circulating. It's a derivative of um, a couple of recent ones, re- recent derivatives of um, or subvariants of COVID that we've seen. So it's all in the same line of what, what's been going on here since December 1st of 2021. That is, Omicron keeps experimenting, finding ways to evade our immunity a little better and finding ways to transmit a little better. And that's what it's continuing to do with uh, this particular subvariant. Last week, we discussed a modest increase in COVID hospitalizations um, and rising amounts of COVID in sewage samples across the country. Um, do, does the data support the idea that it's this subvariant, ERIS, driving, driving those phenomenon, or are they separate? We don't know yet. Um, we're not doing enough sequencing to really have that kind of granular data. But looking at how um, EG uh, uh, 5.1 is growing, it would suggest that it's certainly contributing to these numbers. And we're, unfortunately, we're continuing to see, since our discussion last week, we're continuing to see new hospitalizations go up a little bit, nothing dramatic, but a little bit. Um, Deaths remain flat, which is great, but the wastewater, which is proving to be a very valuable tool, is is significantly up, telling us there's an awful lot of virus out there. The other good news, uh, besides deaths, is that our hospital capacity remains really uh, in very good shape going into the respiratory season. 
What about the updated booster that's supposed to be made available this fall? Based on, on where the mutations are in this newest subvariant, I'm going to keep calling it Eris. <laughs> you can keep calling it EG.1.5. Based on where the mutations are, do, do we expect the updated booster to be effective against it? We do. Um, it's not too distant um, genetically from what's contained in this booster. Uh, so we expect this booster should be effective. It won't be as effective as if we had the identical match. And this, of course, we started making this just a few months ago. And everybody anticipated that the virus would continue to evolve. But it hasn't evolved so much away from the new vaccine that we sh we expect that it won't work. Or to put it another way, Brian, um, we expect it will work well. The question is, how well will it work? Fair enough. Uh, at this point, we should open the phone lines. If you've got questions for Dr. John Swartzberg and want to put in a corona call, it's 1-800-958-9008. That's 1-800-958-9008. Uh, I want to start with a question that came in from Madonna, who did not mention her city. She says she's 73 and immunosuppressed uh, and is concerned about how to manage uh, any upcoming increase in COVID in conjunction with the flu season. Her first question is, are we seeing anything useful from the Southern Hemisphere, from Australia, that tells us what kind of flu season we're in store for? Yes, we are. That's a really important question uh, she's asking. The good news is that the flu season has not been anything unusual in Australia. Some of the listeners may recall that last year, Australia showed in their winter a big early spike. And we recapitulated that last year with a very early spike in influenza. Uh, Australia showed a little bit of an early spike, but then it sort of leveled off and it was an average flu year there, which portends a good prognosis for us. Also, the types of influenza circulating in Australia and other Southern Hemisphere countries tends to be the ones that are covered in this current upcoming vaccine that we can get. So that's good news, too. The second is uh, how to time the flu vaccine and the COVID vaccine, get them together, get one before the other. If so, which one? Well, we, we do have good data now showing that you can get them together, that it doesn't blunt the immune response of one or the other. So that clearly is a strategy, and it's, pretty, uh, it's a pretty good strategy for people who really don't want it, the hassle of having to go in once and then go in again. So, yes, you can get it together. The only downside to that is if you tend to react a lot to particularly the COVID vaccine and then you get another vaccine on top of that, it may make the next 24 to 36 hours a little less, less comfortable for you than if you spread them out. So um, it's really your call in terms of what you want to do for yourself. The important thing is to be sure to get it. And let me just say one other thing about the flu vaccine. Unlike COVID, influenza is reasonably predictable. It always occurs in the winter. It tends to, at our latitude here in Berkeley, for example, we tend to start to see the cases significantly uptick in December and it reaches, reaches its zenith in late January and then February and then starts to dribble off and is pretty gone by the, pretty much gone by the end of March. The influenza vaccine 
is short-lived. That is, the protection we get from it is short-lived. So you don't want to get it too early. Um, you'll see pharmacies advertising already that they have the flu vaccine. But if you get it in, let's say, September 1st, by the time influenza usually is, is um, in its greatest numbers, you're going to have um, not as much protection as you really should get. So a better time to get the influenza vaccine would be late October or very early in, into November before we start to see an uptick in cases. Now, of course, you want to keep an eye on what's happening with flu. And if we have an early surge, then that strategy should change. But generally speaking, I think a good time to get it is going to be in October, late October, early November. COVID, by contrast, if we're on the, the upslope of a new wave right now, uh, a lot of us would probably want to get that booster as soon as it's available. My last shot was last September. Yes, I completely agree with you. Um, COVID is not predictable, as we've unfortunately experienced. A lot of people want to say it's a, it's a seasonal virus now. It's really not. Um, and yes, we are seeing an uptick in cases right now, as we just previously discussed. So when that booster becomes available, I would avail myself of it. I wouldn't try to time it. All right, let's go to the phones. Uh, we'll start in Oakland, where Tony is on the line. Good morning, Tony. Tony, you with us? Okay, we're going to give Tony a chance to get back to his phone. Uh, the number for your corona calls, your questions to Dr. John Swartzberg, 1-800-958-9008. That's 1-800-958-9008. Uh, from the inbox, a uh, question related to our last one. Amy in Oakland writes in, how long does one need to wait after getting the old bivalent vaccine uh, to get the new one that is coming out sometime this fall? Wait, you should wait, um, ideally, five, six months after the last one. The reason I say that is because we've learned now that if you get them too close together, you don't get quite as good of an immune response. If you have a larger, longer distance between the two, you get a better immune response. So we found that, let's say, six months is a, is a really good time. And if it's been more than that, get the booster at that point, and you'll have a very good immune response. That said, there's got a lot of exceptions to this because this is real fine-tuning. Let's say that you're going to be uh, have a big occasion coming up that you really have to be healthy for. You're going to be traveling and not have access to a lot of the care you might have if you were home. Um, you would push up getting the booster. So if it was four months, fine, get it at that point. So we, a, a lot of this is really a complicated calculus and the answer is somewhat nuanced but generally speaking if you wait five or six months between the two you're going to get the best immune response great uh let's try tony's phone line again good morning tony good morning and thank you for the excellent show i have had covid i have recovered and tested negative i have a probably unreasonable fear of a false positive from the home antigen tests. How frequent are they? And under what circumstances do you recommend periodic retesting uh, if I feel well, which I do? Well, Tony, Tony how, how long have you been recovered? Three weeks. Three, Three weeks. Okay. Dr. Schwartzberg? 
Well, Tony, I'm, I'm delighted to hear that you've completely recovered. That's great. Um, my recommendation is to stop testing of any kind. Just there's no reason to test. You're well past the period where you're going to be contagious to anybody else. Um, the question specifically that you ask about false positives with the home test, they're very, very, very unusual. That is, if you have a positive test with home test, it almost always means that you're currently infected with this virus and you can transmit it. It's the PCR test, the one that's much more sensitive, uh, that has continues to be positive, sometimes weeks and sometimes even more than weeks, in a matter of a few months, it remains positive after an episode of COVID. That does not correlate with contagion. So if your home test is negative, um, it's very unlikely you're contagious. If your PCR test is positive uh, and continues to be positive, my suggestion is to just stop testing it because it's, it uh, continues to be positive long after you're contagious. PCR tests are the ones that uh, you have to go in to get them done. They send the, the sample to a laboratory for analysis, and it's detecting RNA fragments of the virus. So it could be picking up on dead virus that has been destroyed by your immune system but not cleared from your body when it shows a positive weeks after an infection. All right, uh, let's go to our next caller. Sonia is on the line in Marin. Good morning, Sonia. Good morning, and thank you. Um, I just wanted to throw the RSV uh, vaccine in the mix and try to figure out when to get that in relation to the COVID shots. Hmm. Sure, I'm glad, I'm glad you asked that, Sonia. Um, the RSV vaccine, we, we've, at least doctors have always thought about RSV as a, a, a very young child's disease, and it causes considerable morbidity and, unfortunately, significant mortality in very young children. So the advent of this vaccine for that group has been wonderful. But what's sort of gone under the radar is that six, 10,000, 12,000 older adults every year die of RSV. And, it, and several hundred thousand, or oftentimes 100, 200,000 people will get hospitalized with RSV adults. So it's an important vaccine for people who are older as well, or people with at any age with significant underlying diseases, much like with, uh, we recommend with COVID. So the answer to your question is that if you're over 65, maybe over 60, and you want to get protected against RSV, I would avail yourself of this vaccine. It should be coming out sometime in September. So it'll be three vaccines that we're talking about now for the fall for um, older adults, RSV, influenza, and COVID. And everybody's probably saying, oh, come on, I, I've never had vaccines before, or I just got the flu vaccine and was one and done. But, you know, um, much morbidity and mortality in our species occurs in what's called a U-shaped curve. And that is it's very high in the very, very young and then it comes, becomes very high again in the older groups. So it's a U-shaped curve in that sense. And we've always done a, we've done a very good job over the last decades in protecting our very young with vaccines. We haven't done a very good job convincing or at least making clear to the American public how important vaccines are for the older, older group as well. And we haven't had a lot of vaccines for the older group. We've had the pneumonia vaccine, for example. But... Now we are fortunate enough to have 
influenza, COVID, and RSV. And I think that it's really important that older, older people consider this vaccine. How do you time it? We don't have a lot of data on that. So RSV tends to be a winter virus. So I would get it sometime before the winter. Um, and it should give you very good protection. Dr. Schwartzberg, I want to return to, to Tony's question about testing and ask a, a only peripherally related follow-up, which is there's been kind of ongoing controversy about whether you get uh, better results or more sensitive results with the home test if you throat, swab the back of your throat in addition to swabbing your nose. Um, I, I, I recall at one point a lot of studies were being run on that. They didn't all agree with each other. Is there any kind of consensus on the best home testing protocol to avoid a, a false negative? Well, there's not as much data as we would like. That said, uh, more recent data is suggesting that swabbing the back of the throat as well as the nose um, can give um, makes the test more sensitive. That means it picks up COVID, whereas it might, you might miss it if you just swabbed one of those sites. So I think we're seeing the data um, now a little more convincing that the two sites may be much better than just the one. And uh, how, how would you do that? Throat first, then your nose, or vice versa? Um, throat first, then the nose, or alternatively, uh, you can use two tests. Of course, that just adds to the expense, and one in the nose, one in the throat. Got it. And, and the theory here is that the virus seems to multiply first and fastest in the throat before it moves up to the nasal passages in, in the course That's of a normal infection? That's right. That's the hypothesis. I, again, I, we're not standing on incredibly firm ground making these statements. We'd li I'd like much more science about this, but that's, that's the idea that there is more virus being replicated, particularly early on. What this is all about and what you're getting at, Brian, is the problem of false negatives with the home test. It's, it's, a, it's a very good test, but if, you, um, get a, if you've got symptoms of COVID and you have a negative test, whether it's just from the nose or whether it's from the throat and the nose, and it's negative, but you have symptoms consistent with COVID, you can't assume that you don't have COVID. There was a paper published in the Annals of Internal Medicine just two or three weeks ago that showed that if you do just one test, the chances of uh, diagnosing COVID are not great. If you do another one in 48 hours, they become much better, and they become very good if you do it, three of them, each one 48 hours apart, but that takes you out six days. Um, so I think that the strategy you need to do is do the, do the rapid test, the home test. If it's negative, still assume you could have COVID and act accordingly. That is protecting other people around you. Uh, keep testing um, or go and get a PCR test because if you're a candidate, for example, for Paxlovid, and you want to be sure to take it within the first five days after symptoms begin. And you don't want the tests to be dry, to take you out beyond those five days so that you can't take Paxlovid. So keep testing. Don't assume that the home test, if it's negative, is truly negative. So there's, there's infected, and then there's capable of passing the virus on. Um, is a negative home test still a, 
reasonably good measure of whether you pose a threat to people around you at the time you do the test? It's reasonably good. That's right. If it's negative, then you're less likely to be shedding enough virus to transmit. But there's no ironclad rule about that. And that's why I think it's a good idea if you have symptoms, just assume it's COVID and stay away from people until you know what's going on. All right, let's pluck one more from the inbox for our final few minutes. Uh, this is sent on behalf of Carolyn in Saratoga, who is uh, wondering about uh, any promising treatments for long COVID. She specifically asked about a supplement called urolithin A, uh, which allegedly helps to improve mitochondrial function and reduce inflammation. Do you know anything about it? I don't know anything specifically about that, but there's so many things that people are claiming that work for long COVID. The bottom line is we just don't know yet. And long COVID is probably not just one entity. It's probably a variety of uh, different insults to our body, depending upon our own genetics. And so um, I would be very skeptical of anybody who's claiming that they have a treatment for quote long COVID. That said, um, I am very excited about the fact that there's a lot of money finally going into long COVID. Uh, this was just recently allocated by the federal government, and we're going to start to see the fruits of that in several months. And that's very exciting. It's, it's well overdue. There's so many people suffering from this. And so it's long overdue. But now there's finally enough funding to at least get things moving better I just hope that that funding is not one and done kind of funding, but it continues on a regular basis. So the funding is finally there and we're going to benefit from that. So for people suffering from long COVID now, it's still going to be a while, but we're moving up the research schedule. I mean, it takes a while for, for research to yield any fruits that actually make their way to the clinic. Um, I, I'm going to assume... Carolyn is dealing with long COVID herself or, or in someone she cares about. And I'm just kind of curious, you know, there's, there's always uh, kind of commercial entities that'll walk around uh, promising miracle cures. If you just get their over the counter supplement, like what, what are the reliable repositories of information on things that might work or at least worth trying? Yeah. I, thanks for asking that. I think the best thing for the public to do is to find a site it's reliable, anything with a .edu after it. So a medical center, uh, for example, here in our community, Stanford, UCSF, go, go to their sites. Um, they, have, they have clinics that deal with long COVID. So you're going to get reliable information there. Another very good resource, of course, is the National Institute of Health, the NIH. So go to that site and you can get some very good information. Another really good site that <clears throat> the public doesn't tend to use as much, but I use all the time, <clears throat> excuse me, is the Infectious Disease Society of America, IDSA. They have an excellent site on everything to do with COVID, and it's easily um, uh, accessed by the public. So those are some of the places I would go. All right. Well, uh, we'll, we'll leave with a reading list. Dr. Schwartzberg, thank you so much for spending another Monday with us. You're welcome. Thank you. All right, that does it for this week's edition of Corona Calls. If you want to send in a question for the next one, you can shoot an email anytime to upfront at kpfa.org. 
or you can tune in live. We normally broadcast Mondays just after 7.30 news headlines on KPFA. We put a little bit of extra work into repackaging this live segment as a podcast because it feels like the information is useful to a lot of people. and We ought to make it accessible through as many channels as possible. You can help us get the word out by rating and reviewing it in whatever app you're using to listen. And if you want to pitch in some cash, we wouldn't say no. We always take donations at kpfa.org. appreciate it if you mentioned Corona Calls when you make your pledge. My name is Brian Edwards-Teekert. I hope you have a great week. Stay well. We'll talk to you next time.